If you have a Bible, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Um, I apologize if you're hearing bouncing, it's just the room, so we don't have uh, control over that. We'll continue to work on that, but if you're in person here, sorry about that. Um, I'll try to slow down so the words don't kind of run together. But Philippians chapter 2, for those who are type A's, here's our big idea for today. It's really simple. Um, one of the biggest threats to unity in a community of faith is the self-interested pursuit of status in community. And so what I want to talk about today, actually, as we continue our series on Philippians, is embracing downward mobility as a way of life. So I hear these words from Philippians chapter 2. And then at the end, I'll invite you just to say thanks be to God as we receive God's word. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been going through this <clears throat> series on the book of Philippians. And just for some context, it's really important that you understand what's happening socially here for this to really make sense. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who planted this church, is writing to, uh, under house arrest to this church at Philippi. And, and he encourages them. We said last week, that, or two weeks ago, that really the kind of the pivot point of the book is verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, live, it doesn't come out in most English translations, but actually in the Greek, it's live as citizens of the good news of King Jesus. Live as a colony, he'll say in chapter 3, of heaven. And what's interesting here is um, as we approach chapter 2, which is a very famous hymn, it's a poem in the Greek that many people believe was sung and, and kind of recited in church uh, gatherings of believers. Um, you miss it in this translation, and many translations miss it in verse 5, where it just says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Um, the translation here actually should be, I think, better uh, stated, in your relationships. Have this mind of Christ Jesus in your relationships, in your community with one another. So Paul's primary concern here um, in, this, in, in giving us this hymn is not to give us a doctrinal treatise. This is not Paul giving a systematic theology about uh, Christology, about Jesus, or soteriology, how we're saved. Uh, this is really here um, not abstract theology. It's not philosophical reflection or speculation. This is all about relational integration. Relational integration. If you go back to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, this section started with Paul saying, I want you to be unified. So Paul's theme is unity and love. And by unity, I don't mean um, what we often talk about, often in secular culture, by unity, which is some kind of um, forced uniformity. 
That's not what Paul has in mind. It's not that everyone is going to look the same, talk the same, think the the same things exactly. But it's more the idea of solidarity. A solidarity of mind, a solidarity of heart, a solidarity of soul in terms of what Paul's saying here in verses 1 through 4. Share the same goal. Have the same affections for one another. Have the same love. That's what good theology should do, right? Good theology doesn't just lead our minds to think about good information, but rather it empowers us with direction. It should inspire us. It should transform us in our embodied lives in the world, right? Like how we live, how we show up in our relationships as husbands and wives and single people and parents and grandparents and children and citizens and neighbors. So I want you to keep that in mind as Paul writes this hymn and Verses 5 to 11, this is not about just theology. This is about ethics. This is about how we live in our relationships with one another. That's how Paul is taking this hymn and specifically applying it in this context. Now, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is probably the most commented on and debated passage in the Bible. Uh, In my commentary work this week with, like, scholars, um, literally, like, uh, this is the most I'm going to read. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of pages of reading on these seven verses. Um, and again, it was a poem or a hymn that uh, was a part of the early church's liturgy. Um, one scholar calls this Paul's master story, right? Like we've kind of arrived at like, if we're traveling up Mount Everest, we've kind of arrived at like the summit of Paul's theology, his spirituality, his ethics. Like this is it. We're at the top here. And you actually see Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 echoed throughout the rest of the narrative of scripture. Like if you go uh, to 2 Corinthians 8, you'll, you'll see this pattern repeated and we'll talk more about that here in just a second. But let me just make a note here, since we don't live in this culture, it's really important that uh, we understand the cultural context here of what Paul's, who Paul's writing to. Uh, because there's a social context here that apart from this social context, you will completely miss what Paul's doing uh, in this passage. And so um, if, you, if you know anything about Greco-Roman culture, it was what we call an honor-shame culture. Now, if you're from the East, if you're uh, Asian, for instance, of Asian background, you know something about honor-shame culture. In the West, we're more, we've been more of kind of an individualistic, innocence, guilt culture. Uh, other cultures around the world, most cultures around the world are actually more honor-shame. And this hymn is written against this backdrop of this honor-shame culture. And honor-shame culture, if you're not familiar with it, essentially, um, it's a little bit different than how we talk about shame in America, which is more individualized and psychological. This is more corporate. And, uh, and this, this, uh, this honor-shame culture was essentially this very rigid, hierarchical uh, pathway in Roman culture by which people acquired status. So it was all, he's writing here, and he's talking about honor, and he's talking about status and how that's gained or lost in community. And so Roman culture was really interesting. Um, it was unique in all of antiquity because honor or status was a combination of both aristocracy, or what we might call passive status, and meritocracy, which we might call more active status. And it was a really interesting. Most cultures back then were purely aristocratic, right? Like you were born <clears throat> into a certain class, and you really couldn't advance much in that class. And Rome certainly had some of those aristocratic elements, right? The predominant way that status was conferred on people was through this hierarchy, right? And so uh, social class was hierarchical, with limited mobility and multiple intersecting social realities. Your relative position on that ladder was based on a couple different factors. One could be your ancestry. Like what, what kind of people did you come from? There were two basic classes of people, the patrician class, the wealthy, and the plebeian class, the lower class, tended to be more farmers and agricultural folk. Um, so ancestry was one. 
Wealth and political privilege was another, um, the highest being the senatorial class, the lowest being the slave class or the indentured servants. Gender, we, maybe you're familiar with the, the terminology pater familias, the, the head of the family, the male had absolute authority, both legally and informally within a household environment. So that was uh, definitely something there. And then citizenship, whether or not you are a Roman citizen or not. Um, and so that's kind of how the aristocracy side worked. So you're born into one of these classes, and it's really hard to break out of that rigid hierarchy. The second type of uh, status, though, was more, uh, more of a meritocracy. Where like ordinary folks in Rome from the plebe class could, if they were particularly brilliant or talented or whatever, they could work their way into the patrician class. They were called homo novus, which meant like new wealth, new money. So you people that could break into a new social class because you were brilliant or smart, or very competent or whatever, or maybe really skilled in the military. Now, here's the thing. It was expected in this system, this ladder, that you would use your status to advance your own self-interest. It was expected, as a matter of fact, to not do that, to not cash in on that privilege, to not cash in on those advantages would actually bring shame on yourself or your family or your class. So the goal is to move up the social ladder. This is called the curses honorum. The curses honorum, to move up the social ladder by achieving the highest honors possible socially and then to avoid shame at all costs. Like failure, weakness, shame was to be avoided at all costs. Now, with that background in mind and understanding how class dynamics and how uh, hierarchy work then, you can understand, now put this in context and read this back through that grid, right? Paul is calling them to be aware of advantage and how they use those, uh, that honor status system in their own lives and in their community. And what Paul is calling them to be aware of is how this Roman honor or status system can actually be brought into the church and spread like a virus and actually destroy their unity. That's why he says, watch out for rivalry. That's a political word, like a party spirit or a divisiveness. And watch out that you don't engage in empty glory. Empty glory is actually the same word that he's gonna use of Jesus here in a minute when he talks about emptying. It's the word kenosis. But this is a kenodoxia, an empty glory. It's this uh, kind of sense of like a political self-promoter, right? Like think of somebody on social media who's trying to promote themselves because of a sense of maybe emptiness. Because I don't have a sense of my worth, I have to tell everybody how awesome I am. That's, that's the idea here. So Paul is making a contrast between this Roman status system with the way of Jesus. And then the rest of the book, he's actually going to point out positive examples of what this looks like. So he says, imitate me as I go down the ladder and pursue downward mobility. Imitate <clears throat> Timothy, who's done that. Imitate Epaphroditus, who's done that. And then he's going to give some negative examples with Yodia and Sanctity, two women that were fighting and were engaged in rivalry in chapter 4, to the leaders in the Philippian community. He says, don't do this, do this. So that's the framework within which we have to understand unity and, and status and how status is such a threat to unity in the community of faith. So how do we pursue wholehearted unity? Paul says, only through the power and the presence and the pattern of Jesus. So let's go to this, uh, this verse 5, and let's look through this. I just want to make a few comments on this, uh, this great hymn. There's so much that could be said, and we could spend a lot of time here, but I want to look at the pattern of Jesus together, and I just want to make a few comments about what it looks like to live uh, the downward mobility life, to, to redirect ourselves for the good of others. Um, here's what Paul says, Christ Jesus, who, exist, who existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. This word uh, existing in the form of God, the form of God is the word morphe theu in the Greek. And uh, it means an outward form that fully expresses the real being or substance that underlies it. Different translations put it different ways, but one you might have says Jesus was in very nature God. Like what we see in Jesus Christ is the fullness of God being revealed in flesh. So when you think of God, don't think of God in an abstract way. Look at Jesus. You see the very nature, the very essence of who God is in the life of Jesus embodied in human form. So though Jesus, knowing who he was, right, he never renounces his status as God. That's very important to understand. He never renounces his power or his authority. John chapter 13, when he goes to wash the disciples' feet, it actually says explicitly, John says, Jesus, knowing from where he came and knowing to where he was going, stooped down to serve. So he doesn't give up his power when he becomes human, but here's what he does. He says he doesn't take advantage of it. That's this Greek word that only occurs here in the New Testament, harpagmos. Harpagmos is this word, it's, it was an idiomatic expression that usually referred to robbery, like in a common parlance, robbery or exploiting someone, taking advantage of someone. And what Paul is saying is that although Jesus was fully God with all of his divine privileges and all of his powers, he renounces the right to exploit or take advantage of this status for self-interested purposes when he becomes a human. Instead, what does Jesus do? He empties himself. He empties himself by assuming the form of a servant. The word there is actually slave, taking on the likeness of men. So this word emptying, again, is the word kenosis. He emptied himself. Some translations say he made himself nothing. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God or that he exchanged his divinity for humanity. It wasn't like he's 50%, like he gives up 50% and he becomes 50% God and 50% man, okay? So for those of you mathematicians, this is not going to make sense to you, but it's actually 100% and 100%. He's 100% God and he's 100% human. He's both. How can that be? Read something on hypostatic union. There's a lot smarter people than me that have tried to make sense of this theologically and historically. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Great, I don't either. I just know it means he's 100% God and 100% man. It means he emptied himself, I think, and most scholars agree, of what would have prevented him from being truly and fully human. He, he refused to take advantage of those things that he could have, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, some of those divine attributes. He took on this self-imposed. Now, it's really important that you understand here, it's self-imposed. He, it's, it's a reflexive tense, if you want to get like into grammar. He did this to himself. Nobody did it to him. He says in John, I lay down my life. Nobody makes me humble myself. I humble myself of my own accord. That's super important. Forced humility is not humility. It's violence. He took on these responsibilities, these limitations, and the status of the lowest kind of human being in the Roman social hierarchy, a slave. Now, don't get confused. Don't get it mixed up here. When he says uh, he came in the likeness or the form of a slave, morphed, Morphe dulu, contrasted with morphe theu, morphe dulu in the likeness of a slave, in the form of a slave. A Roman slave is not like a European uh, American chattel slave. Two different things. Again, uh, oftentimes uh, slaves in the Roman Empire were Roman citizens who sold themselves into indentured servitude to pay off debts. Once the debts were paid, they could actually free themselves. However, 
They were considered property, and they were in complete submission to their masters. They had limited rights, and they had no autonomy, and they were often abused. So what Jesus is saying here is, I give up the privileges uh, and I restrict myself from accessing, uh, just flexing and walking around as if I'm God. And he says, I've come to be served, I've come to serve rather than be served. That's what he's saying by becoming a slave. He's taking on the mindset of a servant. And when he had come as a man in this external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He humbles himself which was not a virtue in the Roman Empire. Humbling was something that was referred to slaves. Humility is not in the uh, list of virtue tables in the Greco-Roman Empire. You're not going to hear uh, Socrates talking about humility in that sense. Even to death on a cross. And, and the reason he says even to death on a cross, he's obedient even to death on a cross, is in Jewish Roman culture, there's nothing more shameful. There's nothing more humiliating than crucifixion. Jews considered it a curse, Deuteronomy chapter 21 Romans considered it obscene. It'd be like using a cuss word. If you were to say crucifixion in public, it'd be like yelling out a curse word. And Paul is using this, I think, to shock them. Like, he's trying to shock them and say, what, what kind of upside-down relational values will we have as a community of faith if we worship the death of a slave who died on a cross for our sins? Shocking. Like, this is not the way that society works, is what he's saying. For this reason, God then highly exalted him. The word exalt here is, is a word that means super exalted. It would have been used politically and socially of assigning a person to the highest status possible in Roman society. So that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's quoting Isaiah 45. All beings, angels, demons, humans, one day recognize and acknowledge the truth that Jesus, not Nero, not a president, not any ideology, Jesus is Lord. So what Paul is doing here, in summary, is redefining, this is how, it's beautiful, he's redefining this Roman system of honor and power in light of Jesus' example. Honor, Paul says, is not to be found in competing with other people and exploiting privilege, whether that's privilege that you've gotten as a result of birth, the lottery of birth, or privilege that you've gained through your own efforts and achievements and competencies. It doesn't matter. He says, either way, if you have it, you're not allowed to use it for yourself. But in humility, in weakness, in vulnerability, in self-giving, and, and otherwise, consider the needs of others before yourself. This is the curse's pedorum, the way down, rather than curse's honorum, the way up. Now, more specifically, I think Paul's words would have been heard, uh, and most poignant, not for those at the bottom of the social status hierarchy in this community, but those actually higher up. See, we often romanticize the early church and we think it was made up of all poor people. But that's actually not true. Um, it, it was comprised of some of the oppressed and some of the impoverished groups and some slaves and women and those who were at the bottom of the social hierarchy in Roman culture. But when you read the stories of the New Testament and you look at the list of leaders, i.e. Lydia here in this church who would have been hosting this church in her home, we see that many of them actually came from upper class aristocracy. They were born as Roman citizens. They were wealthy. They were highly educated, socially influential, or they work their way up the status ladder as successful business people or civil servants. Both of those audiences were there, and the leaders often came from the aristocracy in the church. 
So here's what Paul's doing. This is so brilliant. Drawing on the example of Jesus's power and his privilege and his voluntary self-emptying, I think that Paul has top of mind those in the community who also, like Jesus, have status, have power, and instead of following the cultural norms of exploiting that advantage for wealth and privilege and more status, he says, I want you to view your power as a resource to be used to serve others in the community of faith, even to the point of death, he says, even if this means the death or the renunciation of your social status. If you do this, you, like Jesus, Paul says, will be honored, and you will be a catalyst. This is the big picture for unity rather than division. This is what I've called in other sermons on Philippians 2, the pattern of redirection. This is the pattern of redirection or downward mobility. I love the way that Michael Gorman, a New Testament scholar, says it. This pattern of Jesus, the pattern of downward mobility is this although X, not Y, but Z. It's right here on the screen. Although X, not Y, but Z. You see this show up in almost every one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Although he has status, and equality with God, don't use it to exploit selfishly, but empty yourself and humble yourself. Second Corinthians 8, though Jesus was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that you and your poverty might become rich. This is the pattern of downward mobility. This is the antidote to status seeking. This is the antidote to what destroys churches. Now, let me just take a moment and talk about our cultural context. It's actually not that much different than Rome. It is different a little bit, uh, some ways. We have, uh, just like Rome, our own version, I think, of an honor-shame status system in America. Now, we're probably more attuned to this now, in this moment, in the midst of multiple social crises, right? And again, the things we're experiencing are not new. We need to keep telling ourselves, these are not new things. They are old things that were slowly moving that are now being exposed and accelerated because we're so densely networked in this global digital system. So these social trends that have been building for years, for some of us, it's like, oh my gosh, what's happened? The world's falling apart. No, actually, like racism's not new, right? You know that? Classism's not new in America. Injustice, not new. These are not new things. Status-seeking, not new. And I think that's why there's so much intensity around conversations about status. Now, in our context, in America, we talk about it in terms of power, and privilege, and social capital. That's how we talk about it. There's a lot of intensity. Uh, one uh, British philosopher, looking at America, looking at the West, he calls it, uh, I mean, he says America has status anxiety. Status anxiety, he says, we have a worry or a preoccupation about our standing in the world, our standing in society, whether we're going up or down, whether we're winners or losers. That's literally how we talk in America. There's winners and there's losers. And we don't say it that directly like in missional community, but like how we kind of think of life. He says, we care about our status for a simple reason, because most people tend to be nice to us according to the amount of status we have or don't have. He lists five causes of status anxiety that I think really actually explain a lot about why it's so intense right now. He says, one, we want to be loved. And when we don't feel loved, we have status anxiety. We want to be respected. When we don't feel respected, we feel like people looking down on us, we get status anxiety. We have high expectations of life. By the way, that's new. In the Roman Empire, people had low expectations of life because categories and classes were fixed. But now we have high expectations. You're a snowflake. You can be whatever you want to be, right? You do you. The American dream. 
Um, we have status anxiety because we want to be winners. We don't like to be losers. And then finally, um, we get anxiety because we know that despite um, our efforts to try to prove this wrong, there are many things outside of our control, and we get anxious when we can't control our environment, i.e. pandemics. So how does status work in America? It works just like it did in the Roman Empire to a degree. There's passive status, and then there's active status. Passive status, I think, explains the first three causes of what he's talking about, wanting to be loved, wanting to be respected, wanting to have high expectations for our lives. This is why we talk so much, I think, in our culture about privilege and power, because people don't feel loved, because people don't feel respected. They don't feel like they can have high expectations because of their, their uh, race, because of their class, because of their level of education, right? Like these kinds of factors. Um, I don't have time to do this here. We've done this in another talk before. But um, if you're not familiar with terms of privilege, uh, where have you been living for the last couple of years? Um, but if you're not familiar with how we kind of talked about that, uh, Peggy McIntosh started this conversation back in 1988 with an article. She's a women's study professor. Um, and she basically defines privilege as the fact that some people have easier access to unearned, asymmetrical social capital based purely on the lottery of their birth. And she lists factors like race and religion and class and ability or disability, education, gender, citizenship, orientation. Intersectionality then has come out of that and is one of the ways we can kind of map out how these power dynamics work. Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American legal scholar in 1989, wrote this article introducing this concept of intersectionality. It's a tool to map out these multiple intersecting social factors that, uh, in her view, block individual and group progress and access to these resources, to these opportunities, to the dignity that people aspire towards in life. Now, this is deeply controversial. We're not going to get into this right now. Um, but I just want to say, like, for some, this framework, um, they see it as nonsense, right? Some are just like, no, this is like woke identity politics nonsense. There's no such thing as privilege. It's a myth. While for others, they see it as the key to explaining why they felt trapped their entire lives. Personally, I think that some of this intensity that we're experiencing around this conversation is actually a reflection of our intrinsic, sen- intrinsic sense of how the Imago Dei, the image of God, justice, dignity, agency, creativity, how the Imago Dei is violated in unjust social structures. So to that end, this framework can be a helpful sociological lens to understand power dynamics and where our society needs to change so that all the vulnerable can have opportunities to flourish. And anyone who has trouble acknowledging this reality probably hasn't been on the wrong side of the power equation too often. Now, I also think this framework is being weaponized by people, ironically, many of them not members of excluded and marginalized classes, for self-interest and for self-protective purposes. It's being used to wage a culture war. That's the passive side. Then there's the active side, and we all kind of participate in this, regardless of what you think about the first, the active side, and this deals with the last two of the things that Batam is talking about, and it's more pronounced in America, this active uh, status-seeking thing, um, because we live in America, because of our ideals that every human is created, uh, you know, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and we're all created, uh, you know, equal, at least in idea, and because we've experienced a lot of prosperity, we kind of live more, some of us live more in this framework. Status is earned through performance. In what I'll call the winner script game. The winner script is basically that your worth and your status is determined by your own abilities. You can achieve anything you want. This is what people tell themselves. We can achieve anything we want if we get an education, graduate high school and college, maybe get your master's, you work hard, you become financially self-sufficient, and you partner up with someone else to raise a family together. That's how you basically pursue the winner script in America. 
Life becomes a competition, a race to the top of the status heap, and there are winners and there are losers, and there's no in-between, right? So you're either a winner or you're not. And I think what Bataan says, what creates the anxiety in this system is what he calls the power of the reference group. The anxiety we feel is we're constantly comparing ourselves, not against Bill Gates, like the most successful, and not against like the poor person who, you know, has no access, but we compare ourselves to our equals. We find somebody just a little bit ahead of us or somebody a little bit behind us, and we look at their relationships, mostly filtered through social media, their home, their children, their job opportunities, their vacations, and we measure ourselves against them, and we're preoccupied with status. And man, it's exhausting. If you ever played the status game, it is exhausting. How'd they get into that home? How'd they get their kids into that school? Why did they get that job? I should have been the one that got, I mean, we played this game and we get preoccupied spending our energy sorting out the status of those around us, i.e. just dinner conversation with you and your roommates or your spouse as you scroll through Instagram or at the end of the night as you're laying in bed talking about what's going on in the world. And by the world, I just mean like your friends or old classmates on Facebook. Now, here's the problem with this framework. This competitiveness leads to a zero-sum game of winning and losing. And ultimately, it leads to exclusion. And I hear this so often in our church. Everybody, just look at me. I hear this every week in our church. If you don't think this is real, it might be because you're on the wrong side of this equation. People come to me. They come to our elders. They come to our staff. I feel not seen. I feel left out. I don't feel like I measure up to this game. There's a game that's happening in Soma. I don't feel like I measure up. I feel excluded. I feel invisible. Now, let me just say this. I know that narcissism is also real. And I know that some of you have a penchant for always finding yourself being on the wrong side of that equation. I know that some of you uh, live with a constant sense of being slighted and offended, what you might call a narcissistic injury. That's another sermon. But for the majority of us who are not that way, the reality is that the church often becomes a mirror of a broader social game being played in the United States and around the world. Do you see this in your life? Do you see this in our culture? Like, think about how we talk about up and down. Rob Wilkins, great author, says this, in the vocabulary of the world, down is a word reserved for losers, cowards, and the bear market. <laughs> It's a word to be avoided or ignored and certainly not discussed seriously, especially in polite society. It's a word that colors whatever it touches, even the otherwise proper company of words that it keeps. Down and out, downfall, downscale. Don't want to hear that in the boardroom. Downhill, downhearted, and worst of all, down under. Sorry, Aussies. A word, it seems, only on the unfortunate lips of the weak, the poor, or the dead. Down under. (laughs) If all that weren't enough, there is this crowning blow against the word. Its antonym is up. And up in our high-voltage society is a word that has come to be cherished, almost worshipped. It's a word reserved for the winners, the heroes, those who know their bill. It's a word to be admired and pursued, the unspoken talk of the party, the way to influence whoever is present, upscale, up-and-coming, upwardly mobile, upper-class, up clearly is the direction of greatness. I defy you to walk into any business, walk into any church, walk into any community, and not see that at work. See it in my own heart. He goes on to say that humility is the call to descend into greatness and into downward mobility. This is the power of redirection. This is what we're being called to here, 
to see that status game, to pull ourselves out of the status game, to deconstruct the status game in the church, to be a leader, to be salt and light in the world. And here's why it's so powerful in this cultural moment where we're so obsessed with status. I believe that this downward mobility paradigm, this pattern of Jesus, depressurizes and deconstructs the privilege status conversation at both levels of passive and active, right? On the one side, you could say this deconstructs and overturns intersectionality, right? Because at the cross, which I would argue is the ultimate intersectionality, the son of God himself being blocked by religious and political and demonic powers, that's what's happening on the cross. God deconstructs these systems by dying in that system and rising and defeating that system. He overturns the dark powers that block human progress and human flourishing. And in this new scheme, the church, his people, his new humanity, are supposed to be a vision for human flourishing where all of the things that block people from progress in the world all of a sudden are gone. Where now we live in this great reversal of values and expectations for who is important, who matters, In the kingdom of God, it's the least, it's the failures, it's the weak. That's the only way you come into the kingdom of God is by acknowledging you are a spiritual failure. And how then is power used by those who have it? How is status used by those who have it? It's turned on its head. And I wonder how the conversation culturally would shift because we have seen people abuse power. We know that behind closed doors, people are abusing their power for self-interest. I wonder how the conversation would shift in our culture if people saw the powerful extracting themselves from the status game and laying down their power for the powerless. When was the last time you saw that in politics? When was the last time you saw that in the boardroom? When was the last time you saw that in your neighborhood? When was the last time you did that in your own family? So much more compelling when, like Jesus, it's not forced through redistribution, but it's actually voluntary. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's playing on the status game here. Neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You are equal. You are in solidarity with one another. It also shreds the winner's script because in order to come to Jesus, you must confess that you're a failure. You're saved by grace, not by your performance. Now, let me begin to wrap this up. How do we actually do this? What does this look like? just make a couple of comments. How do we actually pursue this? How can we show up better in our community? How can we become more aware of how we're playing these games and resist this and follow the way of Jesus in our community? As I show up in the pandemic on my front porch in my backyard, as I show up in my discipleship group or on Zoom in my workplace who I'm investing in, how do we do this? Just give you a couple words here. First, uh, it starts with naming Jesus is, uh, Paul here, I think, is talking to those with status, those with honor. And we have to be able to acknowledge our status. We have to be able to acknowledge, uh, without guilt or shame, the power and the privilege that we carry with us, sometimes by virtue of the lottery of birth. I'm looking out at a mostly fairly status-heavy group right here. I, I carry a role as a pastor, as a white male, educated, with a PhD, who's in a middle-class neighborhood. Some of those things I had something to do with, some of those I had nothing to do with. But I've got to be able to reflect on the values and the norms and the expectations that come with my role. When a pastor enters a room, that means something. And I've got to be aware of that and resist the temptation to exploit that for my own advantage. Or to carry shame because I'm not a CEO of a company. I'm a pastor. 
You will never be aware of the temptations. You will never get out of this cycle if you live in denial. If you want to say, oh, I don't have any power, I'm powerless, and you actually do. That's the most dangerous, toxic form of power is the person who refuses to acknowledge they have it. Then we renunciate it. That's the second thing. We renunciate it. Like Jesus, we acknowledge, yeah, like I have these privileges, I have this power, I have this status. And I've got to become aware of how I play into that game and renounce those patterns. Like, are you aware of the ways that you play the status game? I'm just going to throw a list up on the screen. Again, we don't have time to go in depth, but these are some of the ways as I was reflecting on my own heart in my own life uh, and, and listening to some others, how we tend to pursue the status game. The status game looks something like this for different ones of us. We assume, if you assume status seeking really isn't a problem for you, it's probably a problem for you. If you generally think you're smarter, more talented, more competent, more high capacity than other people around you, you might be playing the status game. If you're often thinking the opportunity should have been given to you instead of someone else because you would do a better job, you might be playing the status game. You spend your mental energy and conversations waiting to turn the conversation to yourself, what you've done, your one-up story, your grievances. Don't listen well and you're constantly interrupting people because you don't value what they have to say. You don't think they're worthy of listening. You're critical of others, but you have a hard time receiving constructive criticism. You're reluctant to learn because you're confident in what you already know. You pursue mentoring and learning opportunities from thought leaders, but rarely submit to or learn from those with less power or recognition, such as your peers, your neighbors, children, coworkers, grandparents, your pastors, and other church members. You talk a lot about how overscheduled you are, how busy you are, how productive you are, and you rarely have margin to invest in the hidden, unseen work of prayer and Sabbath and serving the poor and showing up in your community when people actually need you. You spend a lot of time with and serve those of the same social status as you or higher who can advance you in very specific ways that you know they can advance you, and you avoid talking to or spending any time with or serving those who you perceive to be lower standing, more difficult, who don't measure up, can't advance you. Look at who you've had over for dinner the last three weeks. I mean, that's super humbling for me. You find it difficult to celebrate the successes of others. You're constantly comparing yourself to the experiences of stories or stories of others and either feeling better or worse based on that comparison. Particularly, I would look for areas where you're self-protecting in your relationships or your social systems where you're thinking and you're feeling and you're doing are most intense. We have to renounce those patterns humble ourselves, right? Which means self-forgetfulness. I have to stop thinking of myself so much. It doesn't mean self-contempt. I think less of myself. It's self-forgetfulness. I think of myself less, and that self-forgetfulness leads to a self-giving love. And I would argue that was the real power of Jesus. That was the real secret sauce, because Jesus was not preoccupied with his own status, with grasping and climbing and playing the game. He was then free to look around. It's amazing how much emotional margins opened up when you're not consumed with yourself. All of a sudden, I can look around and see people that are hurting. That's why Jesus spent time with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the political and cultural others and outsiders, the poor, women, the physically and mentally disabled. So the question is, how do I consider the needs of others? That's what humility is, in addition to my own, as more than my own. How can I make room in my heart for the needs of others, particularly those who would not be seen as strong, successful, winners, valuable, and worthy in this status system in which we live? And then we empty ourselves. As Jesus did, we empty ourselves. Instead of clinging to the entitlements that come with status, we voluntarily limit ourselves to the mindset of a servant. We show solidarity with the least and the lowest. And we listen 
We take on their perspective. We empathize and have compassion with them. We love them. We serve them. This is the way of downward mobility. This is the way of Jesus. This is humility. We redirect ourselves, our status, our significance, our power, our privilege, whatever it is. We take that and we redeploy that for the good of others. Imagine a church where that was true. I mean, that's, that's what we aspire to be. We are not there. We live in this reality of we're failing in some of these areas and we're doing okay in some of these areas. But imagine how powerful that kind of church would be, that kind of missional community could be, that kind of family dynamic would be if we lived into the vision of the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this invitation downward. So much of our world is consumed with up and to the right. And honestly, we as the church are no different. We are complicit in these schemes. And so, God, would you rescue us, deliver us from this evil? Would you help us, free us to see where we are playing the status game? Show us what it looks like in our individual lives, our corporate life together, to pursue the way of downward mobility, to pursue redirection, as Jesus did. As you live in us, Jesus, would you empower us by your grace to live as you live, to walk as you walk, to think as you think, to feel as you feel, to do as you did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.